0: It's 277 miles long and 18 miles wide and over a mile deep. That's a total of about 1,902 square miles. It's the Grand Canyon. But the GC may not be the greatest separation in the nation. No, there's a far greater one. Seth David Radwell calls it the American Schism. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this... Is Watching America.
1: Oh my life.
0: Watching America. Oh my life. It's panic in America. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. From WHR V Norfolk, this is Watching America. I am very happy to have with us today Seth David Radwell. He received his master's degree in public policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Prior to that, he got his Bachelor of Arts degree, summa cum laude, from Columbia University. But after these achievements, along the way in business, he has been the president of eScholastic, the digital arm of that uh, very famous educational publishing company. Moreover, he has uh, done special work for Doubleday and the Literary Guild and he's also been the CEO for Proactive Skincare. So he knows the business world, but he's also an impassioned person who cares greatly about America. And thus he is concerned about what he sees as a great divide, hence the title to his latest book, American Schism. Now he was influenced greatly by a man called Jonathan Israel, who came up with this concept of really there being two schools of enlightenment. When we think of the Enlightenment, of course, we think of the age of reason and primarily the the 18th century. Uh, Reason versus superstition, science versus supposition. And there's a host of influences that were very prominent in the formation of this country. When we think of the key people, personalities, obviously we think of Francis Bacon, John Locke, uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, amongst others. And so we are delighted to have him to talk about such personalities. Now, before I go any further, Seth, let me ask you, some people argue that the really the renaissance of humanism, if you will, started as far back as uh, René Descartes with the Cogito. Uh, I'm wondering, do you subscribe to that? Or do you actually see the genesis and the beginning of the movement as coming later?
1: No, it's, it's a great question. First of all, thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, I agree with you. As I explain in American Schism, in terms of the genesis of the Enlightenment, I think there were two schools um, of philosophy that were kind of, let's call them early Enlightenment, that really influenced uh the ultimate movement and it's different schools. And one of those to your point is, is the whole school of reason René Descartes is, is fundamental. I also think Spinoza make, makes key contributions in many areas of, of rationalism and how to think about both faith and morals in society. And then thirdly, I think the empirical school, which, you know, you mentioned Bacon. So all of those forces have developed in kind of the 17th century. And by the 18th century, they came to the high, what became the high enlightenment.
0: Well, you have an interesting uh, 98-year span of time. Uh, 1687, you have the publication of Isaac Newton's uh, Principia Mathematica. And then, you know, you you jump, as I say, 98 years hence, and you find the French Revolution underway in 1789. What I am very curious about is how did a person such as yourself with a a very... uh, certain talent for marketing, business, um, discernment as far as uh, the world of commerce wind up becoming interested in this particular era. And my second question in relation to that is you have acknowledged that you are not by training a historian. And I'm just wondering... Given that, do you see it as a detriment or as a very definite, uh, if you will, attribute and benefit in not being a historian in that you can come to things purely and, in a sense, unbiasedly?
1: Well, let me answer the second question first because I think my perspective as a business person who's had a long career in business – but at the same time, uh, an educational background in public policy and a passion for nonfiction, especially the, the Enlightenment, um, all combined to make my perspective quite unique. I'm trying to, I've read tons of historians and academics. And as you mentioned, Dr. Jonathan Israel who is, was key influence along with other writers about the Enlightenment. And I've done tons of research, but the point being is I've operated businesses in society and watched uh, over the last couple of years as our political discourse has has been crowded out, has collapsed. And this probably brings me to your first question, which is why did I do this? Why did I embark on what was essentially a three-year project of research and writing um, to tackle American schism? And that goes back to to, uh, what I was getting into a moment ago, which is that it was heartbreaking for me to watch as the uh, public, political discourse in America collapsed. Was crowded out by rancor and acrimony, and maybe even more uh, frustrating to me over the past couple of years was the apparent disappearance of objective truth. So, to, to me, you know, the the Enlightenment endowment that, uh, which by the way, it's it's ironic because the word Enlightenment, of course, is out of vogue today, and for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can get into. But to me, it was very important to return to the enlightenment to understand why our society has prospered enormously over the last couple of hundred years. If I can invoke an analogy, uh, the enlightenment provided the basis for more human prosperity and flourishing in the last 200 years than in the prior 2000. I mean, let's look at a couple of examples. Life expectancy 200 years ago was 31 years. Today, it's over 70. Uh, 200 years ago, one in five children did not survive till age five. Today, almost all do. 200 years ago, four-fifths of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, while today, one-fifth of the world does. My point being is the Enlightenment as the basis for human flourishing because of its embrace of objective truth, empiricism, science, has had an astoundingly terrific track record over the long run if you take that perspective. Unfortunately, today we're caught in the morass of our day-to-day problems of vaccines and of viruses and of climate change, which are all really important problems. But I think it's imperative that we not forsake our enlightenment inheritance of reason, objective observation, all those things that have brought us such success uh, which we seem to be doing.
0: Would you go so far as to say, perhaps unkindly, but maybe accurately, that we are, if you will, drowning in an abyss of ignorance, which we've welcomed?
1: Yes, I think there's been a cultural embrace of of, of rancor, acrimony, and screaming, which is entertaining. The way I describe it, um, Alan, is that uh, we have in America today uh, this kind of amygdala-driven platform for how to talk to each other, which is very good for Twitter. And it's related, of course, to part of our, our, our genesis as humans. We have this uh, primitive desire for in-group and out-group, and our endorphins get going when we associate with people we agree with, and when we challenge those we don't. We all know this because it's, it's wonderful to be in a football stadium and watch a match, and we get all worked up. My point being is, the, the, that's completely human, and that approach is wonderful for sports. It's not the best way to make public policy. And unfortunately, we've allowed that approach to f- creep in and eventually take over our entire political dialogue.
0: We had as a guest uh, a Dr. Pamela uh, Pareski, who was on the show, and she had written a work called Rehumanizing Our Opponents' Habits of a Free Mind. And she talked about the proclivity of people to think in terms of, I have moral purity, those that oppose me have moral pollution. And she said, until you get beyond that precept or series of, of uh, filters, one cannot even get to, you know, first base as far as trying to achieve understanding to what do we attribute this, if you will, uh, contagion of of lack of thought, deep thought? Do we blame it on the universities? Do we blame it on the schools? Is it generational? Uh, you will argue, obviously, that it goes back uh, in varied forms and has always been here to the 18th century. But the contemporary form of it, to what do you attribute it to?
1: Well, there's no question that the contemporary form of it is exacerbated by our media model, uh, which it, which incentivizes, if you will, the type of sometimes entertaining, screaming, and fighting that we we saw both at, at on cable TV now, on social media for sure, and increasingly at political rallies uh, of the last couple of years. So I think I, I, our media model is part to blame. But, but if I could, Dr. Campbell, for a second, the whole premise of American Skiz in the book is to say, we've always had huge divisions in our country. This is not new. In fact, the, the states have been successful. The United States, the American experiment, if you will, has been successful in part because of the ability to disagree and debate and have differences of, of opinion on core issues. And by the way, these debates have always been a mix of, of reason and rationality and emotion. That's normal. But today, the reason has gotten crowded out. So, what the book does. Is it The the hypothesis is that not only are we caught in these partisan bubbles, which you hear about frequently, but we're also caught in a time bubble. And by taking a look back and tracing through this lens of the Enlightenment, which I think is so valuable, the founding of the country, along with specific episodes in our history, we can learn a great deal about the antecedents of the divisions today and how they're playing out and have a much better perspective of how to change how we're approaching it to, to make progress. The last part of the book lays out a roadmap forward that rejects the type of political discourse we see so often today and implores upon us to fight on reason with reason and establish a new dialogue. Now, to your last point, fundamental to that new dialogue is the notion that empathic listening is part of what makes a democracy work. And the belief that you know I'm moral and you're not is, of course, it's completely ridiculous. So we we all have attributes and we all have faults. And and you know I, I think understanding other points of view and listening, while uh, difficult sometimes, are necessary for a democracy. So again, to me, the direction we're going in. Spells doom for our democracy. And if we want to hand off democracy to our children, we have to change the dialogue. We have to fight on reason with reason. And that's what led me to this path.
0: Well, we actually have to change the the approach to dialogue in of itself. I'll, I'll give you an example Um, It's become very apparent to me since doing this particular show, Watching America, that there are some, not all, but there are some people out there who won't entertain thoughts that differ from their own. In fact, they object to it. And that's when you get the letter that says typically you shouldn't give this person a voice uh, and principally the underlining thought is because I disagree with them. So, um, you know, in fact, (laughs) we did an interesting show on council culture. Uh, and which I encountered a couple of people who said, well, uh, there is no cancel uh, culture and therefore you shouldn't have done a show on it. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, ironically, and they went on to say, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing the show and you shouldn't be there. So the idea is they wanted to cancel me uh, debating right. about the issue of cancel culture. Um, essentially, whether it's CNN or Fox, the American model for news consumption is selling items in between uh the, the, the actual programming commercials. Now, you've been on both sides of this. I mean, obviously, as a person, expert in marketing, uh, you you appreciate the importance of getting product out there, positioning product and and uh, making it um, appealing. But at the same time, you seem to be um, a multifaceted person intellectually because you can also see the, the waning side of how this is going to affect um, uh, the future of this nation. And I've worked for various entities and affiliates, CBS and NBC and news. And I know how that works. And the old adage, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. I don't think That's it's right. a case of if it bleeds, it leads. I think it's today it's a case of um, is there a way we can create a thirst for, uh, if you will, insatiable um, discord? And I think the media has been very, very effective at, at, at pulling that off. What was the equivalent of that in the 1700s?
1: So the equivalent was uh, very famously pamphlets that were written from quite a a strongly biased point of view that were put out and and disseminated sometimes anonymously and often um, politically uh, uh, motivated. So one of which of course was Thomas Paine's Common Sense which may have been one of the most influential pamphlets that Mm. led to our revolution. So these types of things happened in our history. And once again, I think the history is very important. For example, the campaign that the Federalists waged against the Whiskey Rebellion uh, was very much um, using tactics that you see today in demonizing People who are, re- who are rebelling, or have a, a, a protest and making them out to be non-American, as an example. But let me come back to, to what you, your, your overall point, which is so correct. I, I think that as a business person, I understand the media models. And I think our media models need to adapt. They need to change. So, But, but that, and that's one part of this. And I actually have uh, proposals about that. But another part is that we as Americans need to realize that we need to demand objectivity and some truth and recognize that both sides are to blame, both the extreme left and extreme right, at caricaturing the other side. In the book I talk about this, 77% of Americans are actually part of what I call the frustrated majority. That don't, that don't believe the left or the right on the extremes is helping. So for your example, like canceling out your show, which made, made someone on the left might call for, is completely antithetical to what a democracy is all about. Now, let's use an example of immigration, which I talk about a lot in the book. What's happened now is both of the two screaming sides have made a caricature of the other side. So whether it's, you know, build a wall or they want open borders. Ironically, in 2013, the Gang of Eight, which was a bipartisan group, came up with a very detailed proposal of a new framework for immigration that would have addressed many of the pressing issues we see today that are still festering. Now, this solution back then didn't make either side happy because it had a lot of compromise, which has become a dirty word. But my overall point is, we were actually quite close to a workable solution. Now, after, after five or six years of screaming at each other, we're much further away. So m- my point being, both sides are to blame for this. And most Americans who are either you know center, left of center, right of center, realize that we're gonna have to make some compromises, which by the way, once again, is not new. In fact, one of the things that American Schism, the book, does is it chronicles the compromises made between the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, because that that 11-year period was vital, where compromises were required so that the nation be born. But at the same time, the credo of the Declaration, which was a radical document, needed to be uh, kept front and center. And how we how we how the framers managed to do that was is quite informative and can be a great lesson for some of our problems today. So once again, the historical perspective, in my view, is really important. So obviously, there, there are many ways we could go here. I love your questions, Dr. Campbell, because we can talk about the, the history. And the two, we should talk about the two enlightenments and what they were. But we can also talk about today's media model and why it's not encouraging this type of debate and what I lay out in the book about what we must change about it.
0: Well, you love my questions. I love your answers. Um, I want to. I want to mention uh, another author we've had recently, a man called Thomas Ricks, and he wrote a book called First Principles. And basically, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work, he was looking at the founding fathers, and he said basically that they learned from classical literature, so it was the Greeks and the Romans on, on which they decided to, to shape this country uh, in many, many ways. Um, how much, if, if if you will, was there a residual impact from the classic literature into the Enlightenment?
1: Great question, and it's, it's really important. It's an opportunity now to go into a little bit of what these two Enlightenments were and why they were so important. Both the, the American Enlighteners and uh, Enlightenment movements all over the world certainly looked at classical times because over the prior hundreds of years, the world had been dominated by feudal systems where the monarchy and, and nobility and the church were really in charge. So these ancient models, which, of course, Aristotle wrote a lot about were and, and from Roman times as well, were important reference points for all the major thinkers. One of the aspects of the Enlightenment that's so interesting and what why I, I use Dr. Israel's work is because most studies of the Enlightenment or, or chronicles, if you will, of Enlightenment history, Divide the Enlightenment by geography. We talk about the French Enlightenment, the British Enlightenment, the, the American Enlightenment, the German Enlightenment, and geography is certainly a valid uh, point of diver- differentiation. But what Israel's work does is it says, you know, across these different geographies, there was in fact a better characterization of Enlightenment thought based not on geography, but on ideas. And th- those ideas split into two overall schools. Now, of course, any classification system for a movement as rich as the Enlightenment is going to be missing aspects. Nothing's perfect. But his classification of the moderate and radical Enlightenment is very helpful, and and here's why. The the Enlightenment figures that we all think about, Locke, Montesquieu, Rousseau, you mentioned Kant, some of them, most of those fall into what's called the moderate Enlightenment, which I'll, I'll come back to. But there were a group of thinkers, especially in the French radical Enlightenment, that had a different, uh, a different take on the social contract. Remember, the social contract was the Enlightenment's construct for why uh, people get together and form a society, and what, and what is it for, and how does it work? It was really the foundational blueprint for modern society. And so many of the Enlightenment thinkers, of course, going back to Hobbes, wrote about the social contract. So what was this big difference between the radicals and the moderates? Well, the radicals had two differences that were seem maybe simple, but they were huge. One was the radicals were the, were the group that recognized at the time that a representative democracy of the people was the only legitimate form of government to keep the social contract alive that was very different from the moderates who really embraced an aristocratic or uh, elite form of government where those who should rule were the elites themselves
0: so would would james madison have been in that camp
1: james madison is is definitely interesting in the sense that he's one that so tried to div- to to bridge the divide because in many ways he he was a jeffersonian which and, and a radical <laughs> But he also, as the author of as the prime author of the Constitution, he was the one responsible for bridging to the moderates. It's interesting that you asked about Madison because the easy the easy way to think about it is you've got on the radical side, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine and Jefferson. Okay. And on the moderate side, Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. That, that's the big which became the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans. But. But the other key difference is important. So, beside believing in a bottom-up form of government of the people, the other key difference that the radicals insisted upon, and this was thanks very much to the French radicals again, was that they had documented over the past hundreds of years how the collusion between the monarchy and the church had oppressed people. They postulated that the only way the civil, the contract, the, the um, social contract could work is if the civil sphere is separate from religion, that religion be a separate area, what what today we call the separation of church and state. So, of course, famously, Jefferson said, uh, you know, not only should we have freedom of religion, but we should have freedom from religion in this new, this new American experiment. And so those two differences were fundamental. Now, the, what, what about the moderates? Well, the moderates believed in um, a government that was – led by people like themselves, the capable, for, for Alexander Hamilton, it was the competent. He was a genius, of course, and designed a government that was intricate in its details. And people like John Adams, who was the aristocratic leader of the colony. So you, you know, the, these were what today we would call elites. Now, they were, the moderates very much eschewed democracy. They did not, they were very fearful of a democratic model. They felt that the word democracy at that time was uh, a bad word, it meant being following demagogues. And because so many of the people, the ed, the populace was non-educated, they felt the populace would be easily swayed by demagogues appealing to their emotions and felt only the educated elite, the competent, could really rule. In fact, if I could, and I know I'm going on at some length, but no, I think It's all, right. it's so all I-
0: very good, it's, it's welcomed, yeah. continue.
1: Okay, thank you. Voltaire, one of our favorite moderates. Of, to my point about the, how the moderates didn't, you know, Im, did not believe really in the separation of church and state, but in fact embraced the church in society. Voltaire had a very famous quote. It's, in French, it says, "Si Dieu, ne, si Dieu n'existait pas, il faudrait l'inventer," which means, "If God didn't exist, we would have to invent him." Meaning that right. we 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 need <laughs> God to keep the, the social contract together. Now, I, I say that somewhat jokingly, but I think it's very telling, because these these uh, the, these moderate enlighteners really um, believe that the they really, in some ways, in my view, uh, sold the people short. Whereas the radicals, in, in what way, in that,
0: what way did they sell the people short?
1: Well, they sold the people short in the sense that they didn't believe that the masses could be educated and could become okay. educated consumers who could. Advocate for their own self-interest,
0: so they were the great unwashed.
1: Right, the radicals believe that you know what? If if so, if a if a representative democracy is the only model that can really work in the long run, we recognize as radicals that we need education to educate the masses so they can actually discern what's in their interests. So it's it's not coincidental that going back to our analogy that. Our constitution in 1787 is much is a, is a blend of moderate and radical ideas. And James Madison and Alexander Hamilton debate the two sides of that frequently in their marketing campaign to have it adopted, which is called the Federalist Papers. Right. They, they're talking about how to balance these two elements. Um, and Madison was right in the middle. Of course, it's, it, it, just interestingly, I'm not sure how much your readers love history, but so Jefferson is away in Paris, and right. so he's not yes. there. <laughs> and and he's sending notes. He's, you know, Madison is a protege of Jefferson. Mm-hmm. He's sending notes back and forth to ensure that the Constitution is true to the Declaration. At the same time, you know, Jefferson Madison is working under the watchful eye of of our friend, Alexander Hamilton. Now, why would it be necessary to make so many compromises and move away from this democratic model in the constitution? Well, here's what happened. Well, first of all, you're
0: dealing with juggernaut personalities. (laughs)
1: exactly. But there was also a shift in mindset. And and this, the the book goes into this in some detail. 1776, the period of the spirit of 76 was a radical period, a period of breaking away from, from England. And it was an idealist period. But but now fast forward a couple of years till after the war was over, we have huge problems on the ground. How are we going to pay for the war? How are we going to have a foreign policy that gets us allies? How are we going to uh, mediate the conflicts between thirteen colonies that are quite different in in beliefs and cultures? How are we going to do all that? So here's where. Compromise and and solution driven approaches. You know, there's a saying: for every critic, there's a thousand playwrights. Here we needed we needed uh, playwrights who could get the job done, and that's where the moderate, like Alexander Hamilton, steps in, mm-hmm. working with Madison and his colleagues, the, the other framers to create solutions which are far from perfect. In fact, they recognize the Constitution would need to be amended, which is why they made it malleable. But the point is, it was a far cry from the radical document that said all men are created equal endowed by their creator with inalienable rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, all of a sudden in the constitution, we have a situation where the only people who really have a voice are white men with property and African-Americans are counted as three fifths of a person from the perspective of population. Now, those are just two examples. I mean, there are many other reasons why the Constitution itself was a much more moderate document. Let me pause there to see if, if what I'm saying makes sense to you and your listeners.
0: It makes perfect sense. Um, one of the things that uh, just, you know, when one does an interview, various memories flood in based on what the guest has said. And you were talking about the creation, obviously, and, and uh, the uniqueness between the Declaration of Independence versus the U.S. Constitution. And I remember being um, with the now late uh, novelist Jersey Kaczynski Well, he spoke about, uh, and this was at the University of Virginia, obviously, the the campus, excuse me, grounds, as they like to say, associated with um, Thomas Jefferson. And he said uh, that when he was abroad and he encountered the phrase life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, he was dumbstruck by it um, because there was no other nation on earth that actually guaranteed the right to the pursuit of happiness. Uh, And... That is well borne out by the things that you've just been discussing. I want to get to a uh, a question that is related to religion. You spoke about Thomas Jefferson speaking about freedom from religion, and yet curiously, uh, as with a facet of a diamond, people are quite complex. And here you have a man who actually defended the Baptist Church, the First Baptist Church of Danbury, Connecticut. So he was mindful. Of uh, of both sides of the equation. Now later on, you speak about e- uh, evangelicals, um, not yeah. always favourably, but with caution. Uh, not hostile, not hostile, but with caution regarding the influence of uh, of evangelicals, particularly in the Republican Party. Uh, and later, you make reference to Billy Graham and, and so on and so forth. Um, how much was that an issue of contention uh, during the formulation of the Constitution?
1: Well. The, the, in the formulation of the Constitution during that period, both the moderates and the radicals really just believed in religion as and faith, as very important as it was, was a private affair. Even Washington, who was more on the moderate side, was definitely uh, private about his faith. And he was a Freemason, of course, as well.
0: Yes. But, yeah.
1: um But the issue that you're raising is nuanced. And because we've been talking about this debate between the radicals and the moderates and your example of replacing Locke's property, the right to property with a pursuit of happiness, which is what Jefferson did in the writing, was an incredible replacement because the moderates were much more concerned about securing property rights where the radicals believed in such a thing as the pursuit, of what we'd call the pursuit of happiness, that is a very significant replacement that you mentioned. But your overall point, which is really important, is that faith is a wonderful part of many people's lives. In fact, most people on the planet. But at the same time, faith is, has been used politically as a weapon to in, in very nefarious ways, in my view, in American history, and we have to examine that. So. The point being is that when faith is used as a bludgeon to uh, associate a certain belief system with uh, the moral majority of Americans or with the prevailing, let's call it establishment, and we've seen this many times over our history, it has often been what I call a counter enlightenment force. So while you have this radical and moderate uh, two sides, What ends up happening in American history, and the whole middle part of the book chronicles this, is that counter-enlightenment forces overlay and ended up creating quite perplexing outcomes. In the constitutional period, in the revolutionary period, it was probably one of the most secular periods of our history. So... Right after that, though, the beginning of the Second Great Awakening, which is interesting in and of itself, because in many ways, the Second Great Awakening was a wonderful movement. It brought women into the dialogue. It, it was very, it was really important for abolitionists. But it was a faith-based movement that was very important. So America became quite religious early 19th century. And uh, one analogy I love to use for this is there's a famous painting that was done at this time, which shows... God handing down to Washington the Constitution as a set, as a tablet of stone, much as in the Bible, God handed Moses the Ten Commandments in stone. So this was ironic for many ways. First of all, it was revisionist because it cast what was essentially a rational process into a religious one. Mm-hmm. But probably more importantly, the whole intent of the Constitution when it was adopted by the framers. Was for it to be changeable because they recognized they could not resolve all the conflicts and that the American nation was likely to evolve. So they made it malleable. So (laughs) this in and of itself, for those who think the Constitution is set in stone, is quite ironic. But I think it it makes the point that I'm that I'm getting at and that I go into in the book, which is that counter-enlightenment forces do have a big effect on what the outcomes in american political society and sometimes those outcomes are beneficial for example i would argue that there were there was a faith based movement in the 60s which really prompted a lot of the civil rights movement which was quite important the second great awakening which is chronicled in the book really played a role in abolitionist movements mm-hmm. and temp Temperance, mm-hmm. stopping—you know—because women were very frustrated that their husbands were getting drunk all the time. Right. So, so I mean, mm-hmm. there were there were movements of the Second Great Awakening that were quite important for societal development, and we all know how important churches have been in the center of American societal life at the community level. So, in no ways am I lambasting or criticizing religion per se. Mm-hmm. What I'm criticizing is when faith uses its heavy hand to exert political influence moving away from the radical Enlightenment notion of keeping a wall between church and state. And that's happened quite often, and it's it's documented in the book.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am delighted to say that my guest is Seth David Radwell. He has written a book called American Schism. And Schism is a Great Divide, as depicted on the cover of the book, uh, with various persons uh, north end of the cover and south end of the cover with a big gap in between. I, I want to change uh, emphasis just for a moment, if we can, Seth. And by, by all means, please call me Alan. I'd like to ask about Seth um, you are a man of, of, of means and, uh, and a man of, of travel and experience. You have, uh, lived in, or well, currently live in three areas, Los Angeles, New York, and Paris. Um, who were you as a little boy and what was it that instilled in you, if you will, the kernel of what would become your interest in American history and your great passion, which is most evident?
1: There are many elements of this but i would say the core is that i grew up believing in the american dream and by the way still do and you know the illu- the illusion so to speak that i created for myself where what made us unique as a nation was it was a place where anyone could succeed based on hard work and on effort and on 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 uh, merit one could get ahead and I think there are many parts of the American myth, let's call it that aren't fact-based in reality. My grandparents were immigrants that came here with nothing. My parents were middle to, to lower class. I mean they were middle class working people. And um, it, you know, I had tremendous opportunities that I was able to take advantage of to craft a life that I think has been very rewarding. Now, why do I say it's a, it's a myth? Because I think on, in some ways that is true. but as I describe in the prologue to the book, I, as I've gotten older, I've realized that in many ways, it is in fact a myth, and it's it's really not, there's a whole other side. In other words, many, many people in our country have not been able to take advantage of the American dream for a whole bunch of reasons. So it's been quite imperfectly achieved. And that uh, process of understanding that to some degree was both disillusioning Because in some ways, I realized that the America that I thought I loved, and and I, in fact, do love it, was not all I I thought it was meant to be or what it it had been. And what I came to reconcile myself to is that as exciting as my business career was, and I've led many companies, and you you mentioned that in the beginning, Alan, I couldn't tolerate the way the uh, American dream was being, almost, it seemed to me, being abandoned or uh, objective truth again being discarded. And I was uh, interested in researching the roots of our divisions back to our history to understand how all of this evolved and into really helping hopefully start a bottom-up movement to reject what we were talking about before, our current approach to discourse, dialogue, and, and the political arena itself. So this has been a passion of love. I mean, this has been a three-year hiatus for my business career, and it's been quite a lot of work. I've, I've read, if you look at the book, the bibliography is many, many pages. Yes. I've read hundreds yes. of works, and I've also consulted with many academics. And uh, I believe that at the same time, the, my hopefully my approach is, uh, uh, is engaging and approachable for the average reader who's interested, for the citizen who's concerned as I am, that we might not be able to hand democracy off to our children. So the short answer to your question is I've always been passionate about the public sphere, which is why I went to, to for a graduate degree in public policy. Uh, I've always been a strong believer in the American dream. And, and the, let's call it the, the model of meritocracy, which is a, makes a is a big part of the book, which we can come back to. But at the same time, I felt that much of it was melting away because of the way we're approaching our republic today, both in terms of our debate and in terms of our approach to policymaking. One could argue that professional politicians, those serving at the federal level, have become completely uh, non-functional. We don't really have a functioning Senate, do we? Um, so I, I'm asking Americans who care about this country to reject the current approach.
0: Well, I want to go a bit further because obviously, indeed, this is ardent primary um for you uh, as a pursuit. Otherwise, you wouldn't have taken a sabbatical of a sort from business for three years at at considerable cost to you, I would imagine. Was there a moment though, I mean, we've all had the experience of perhaps being at a party or at a dinner table and a discussion comes up and then somebody says something and then we go into a kind of like a private reverie and we might be staring at our wine glass for a few moments and mulling over what somebody has said. Was there a moment like that? Benny,
1: yeah, I'm really glad, Alan, that you asked that question. Here was what the moment became. I have a very extensive network of business professionals and through various organizations, through, uh, I I was a McKinsey consultant for a long time. There's a big alumni network there. I was in YPO, which is a professional organization. Point being is that for most of my career, we certainly were able to discuss political issues. It was not a third rail. So what I what 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 happened was I watched at, at the so-called parties that you're talking about, or let's say business events, that my colleagues, both on the right, my conservative colleagues and my liberal colleagues, I had colleagues on both the right and the left, increasingly put their head in the sand and and didn't want to talk about these things because it became almost like a third rail where you you couldn't speak about it. Mm. And I said to myself, so there were moments like you're saying. Well, why can't we debate this important issue? Why can't we talk about immigration? It's such so, so a hot button that we can't speak about it? How are we, how are we as a, a democratic republic going to f- forge solutions if we can't even discuss the problem? The light bulb movement was when I saw really intelligent people and I respect my colleagues enormously basically refuse to discuss these issues because they were fearful of being um uh, of, of of being canceled or being or being perceived as as uh, not politically correct or afraid of getting into it, for whatever reason.
0: Business reprisal.
1: Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. That it would hurt their business. Right. All those reasons. I I said to myself, I had a moment where enough is enough, and I said this is not going to work. Um, and you know, look, this. I didn't go as you can probably tell, Alan. I didn't go into this to make money. This is not a business venture no, for me. No, certainly is, not. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you don't write a book to make money. <laughs> um, uh, this has been something that I care deeply about. And those moments that you're talking about were, were uh, plentiful. And even today, you know, what I'm trying to do with this movement of fight on reason with reason, which the book is a platform for, is to get people who don't agree out to sit down and talk. So I'm hosting various uh, groups of people with different mindsets and different perspectives because my belief is part of the solution in addition to struct, and the third part of the book discusses structural changes that we need, which I think we need. But what we also need is a new movement to speak to each other away from Twitter,
0: to understand
1: what we have in common as Americans because we have a lot in common. We also have a lot of differences. But even understanding those differences is important. And that can be done many ways. Obviously, in-person discussion is the best. But certainly, uh, talking over Twitter, I don't think is helpful at all. And so I'm suggesting a couple of ways of interacting with Americans who are not like us. (laughs) <laughs> like, because we all have different perspectives, right. as part of the solution in, in this campaign to fight unreason with reason. Uh,
0: one of the things that you say in your book, which is is very, very clear, is you take umbrage, and I would say justifiable umbrage, at those who would talk about reality in terms of it being personal. You have your reality, I have my reality, versus the ultimate reality. And yes. um, uh, obviously that's uh, an outgrowth in part of postmodernism. Facts over feelings. Now, the problem that anyone has in the public sector, particularly if you're if you hosting a, a talk show, is that yeah. if you bring up facts that offend people, they um, they will turn quite hostile without examining the facts. So then you get into uh, the issues of uh, assassination of character and what have you, ad, ad hominem uh, uh, elements brought exactly. up. We have to have a respectful dialogue
1: with people with different people who might disagree about the interpretation of facts. that's fine. We need to do it respectfully. But if we ignore the facts, which is what some postmodernists, you know I have my facts, you have yours, which I completely frustrates me and I think is completely counterproductive, we're in essence becoming uh, a society like China where, where where you can't you have to ignore facts to live. So that is a very dangerous slope. My approach that I, I'm encouraging people to uh, to uh, take into account or to adopt, if you will, is to present information, data, and do so in a non-threatening way. And as soon as somebody starts attacking, like let's say you present some figures on vaccines, let's 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 role play this for a minute, Alan. Sure. We could. And we're having a debate, and I disagree. As soon as I start attacking you as a person or making you sound un-American, to me the conversation stops. That's it. Called off. In other words, I reject because I'm looking at data. Someone to characterize me as either less patriotic or more patriotic, or in any in any way possible. That that's a, that's not permissible in the dialogue anymore. So so I'm suggesting a different form of dialogue where we can we, you, you want to present data. You know, as I say sometimes, um, in God we trust, but everyone else has to present the data. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, ironically, people who think they're sophisticated very often invariably uh, prove that they're not by their, their, their reactive natures to um, the very thing we're talking about, facts. How do we amend it? How do we change it? I mean, you're obviously trying to do that with this book. I mean, it was a cardinal principle for you to say, I want to help. I want to change. I want to uh, exert the importance of of contemplation and being uh, uh, in the mindset, if we can, to our founding fathers of this nation, a very, very important concept. And uh, certainly, this has not been in vain, this book that you've written. It's an excellent book. By the way, I'm talking with Seth David Radwell, and I'm talking about the book, American Schism. Which I highly recommend. Uh, uh, the, in so many regards, it is a uh, thought-provoking tome that has um, uh, been presented as a gift. I think to major parts of uh, America and those who like to think. So the question, though, is that h- how do we go about amending it? I mean, I keep going back to that. I, I'm a university professor, and I am I... appalled uh, at the what I. You know, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, you know, but I'm going to say it anyway. The level of intellect of my students now versus 25 years ago is is palatable, is discernible. You can see it uh, virtually and uh, yeah. certainly you encounter it all the time. And we blithely pretend that that's not the case. We're producing more degrees now than we ever had before. But you have people who, you know, virtually can't tell the difference between a consonant and a continent. Uh, so you know, where do we go? How, how do we amend this? I mean, everything, I think so much I'm really going out now. Here we go. <laughs> Here goes Dr. Alan Campbell's career. Okay, so much that we're living with is complete pretense. Yes, and and it's correct. it's it's frightening. It's frightening. It's and it's depressing. You wake up in the morning, you turn on the television, you, and you know that what you're seeing is not entirely true, or it's being distorted for whatever purposes, left, right, or center. And you think, right. how do you how, how do you how do you amend? How do you fix? How do you correct?
1: I love, I love what you're bringing up, Alan, because, you know, the, and your point also about your being afraid to say this stuff, which is obviously true, is part of the problem in and of itself. I, I, I maintain that you can say whatever you think is right and just present us the data. In fact, the data I've looked at support your point of view. Our educational success in many ways is so much, uh, is as regressed. If we compare it to, for example, programs after World War II, like the GI Bill and the the the, the improvement of American educated uh, potential and capacity, it was so much stronger then. And as a consequence of what you're saying, you know, we're, we're losing the global competitive race to to China and to others. So let me put that aside for a second, because you're asking how do we how do we stop ignoring the obvious and and how do we live in this world that has preposterous things being thrown out as fact
0: how do we the how way, do we another way to put it succinctly how and when will we become brave to state the truth?
1: It, it's happening now see that my research says that because of the last couple of years of these you know alternative facts, many Americans are, are re- looking to re- to embrace the truth they understand that it's ridiculous I mean let, let's let's be frank about this. We're counting the vote in Arizona for the 21st time. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is so counter-enlightenment. The data has been presented.
0: Yes. There are a couple yeah. of
1: cases of fraud that amount to a couple of hundred votes, um, which in no way is going to overcome the, the many thousands of votes that separate the two candidates from last November. So the data are clear. We have to, to your point, stop doing this kind of thing. And the risk is that I mentioned before all of the ways we've prospered as a society because of the enlightenment. We risk all of those gains. We risk going back to a primitive age if we reject truth. There is objective truth. And there's something that we have which is called the constitution of knowledge. And Jonathan Roach has written a lot about this. He has a new book about it. But how do we know something is true? Epistemology. Right, first of all, the reason why democracy is so important as a system is it's it's because it is as a system of, of governance, it is epistemologically superior. It enables people to learn, unlike others. When when a, an edict is handed down in an autocracy, people follow it or not, and at much risk to their own lives. In a democracy, citizens have an opportunity to engage and learn, and so th- that's a wonderful thing in and of itself. But here's my overall point: What is this thing? that we call the constitution. How do we know that the earth is round? Did you Alan go up in space and see it? No. No, we, no, I didn't either. We know that it's round because we have a system that's been quite wonderful. Again, that I would argue largely comes out of the enlightenment, not entirely where think of it as a funnel. Kind of knowledge truth is a funnel. Anyone can lob something in the, the wide end of the funnel. It's anyone could can make a hypothesis and, and it's democratic in that way. We're willing to entertain anything, but it has to forego the rigor of peer review, analysis, mm-hmm. specialization mm-hmm. to get out the other side and being, being counted as knowledge. Mm-hmm. So it goes through a process, right, this constitution of knowledge. And again, Jonathan uh, wrote, speaks about it in great, in great eloquence, much better than I'm doing.
0: But we have to
1: re-embrace that funnel.
0: Um, I have to tell you, Seth, that you're the kind of person that I would love to have a, a, a long dinner with and uh, and with some fine wine and because um, <laughs> uh, you're a wonderful raconteur, and but you're also extremely insightful and impassioned. I've always said regarding everyone who appears on this program, and we d- intentionally on this show have uh, myriad different personalities and positions politically and socially and otherwise and ethnically. Uh, and I've never expected anyone to agree with me. Um, I only hope that they will be truthful and impassioned about what they talk about, and you certainly are, and I'm so grateful that you're part of the fabric of what makes this country so great. I hear in your voice, and I think all the listeners hear in your voice, a man who cares deeply, a man who has a a refined mind, and uh, a man who can invigorate, which is very, very necessary at this time of our developing and continuing history. The book is entitled American Schism. The author is Seth David Radwell. Uh, It provokes thought, it's balanced, and is certainly a work that is looking to heal and to solve. And we are so grateful for that.
1: Thank you so much, Alan. It's been a pleasure to be here. And thank you for your comments.
0: You're very, very welcome. Blessings. I wish you great blessings. Take care, my friend. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razor Light. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.